Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The last 10 episodes of this podcast focus, necessarily, on the U.S. presidential election. I'm proud of all the episodes, but I encourage you to find and listen to my interview with Carol Graham on unhappiness among low-income white Americans, and also the two election 2016 event rebroadcasts that looked ahead to what challenges the next president faces. This show will continue to offer many discussions with our experts on President-elect Trump's transition, as well as policy ideas and recommendations for his administration. And you can also stay up to speed on all the issues facing the president-elect as he transitions to the White House by listening to our recent and upcoming events, including ones on the millennial vote, recommendations on global education, and the future of transatlantic relations, among others. And as always, Brookings experts are publishing their ideas and recommendations on a wide range of policy topics, including climate governance, the Middle East peace process, and financial reform. But for this episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, a timeout from U.S. politics. Instead, Chung Lee, director of the John L. Thornton China Center here at Brookings, talks about the rise of Chinese President Xi Jinping through the Chinese Communist Party leadership. Then, Lawrence Chaney looks at the effect of technology and globalization on inequality. And finally, you'll meet Harsha Singh, executive director of the Brookings India Center, located in New Delhi, and find out why it's so important to understand what's happening in India. If you have a question for an expert, you can send it to our email address, bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll find an expert to answer it. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And now, here's my colleague, Bill Finan, from the Brookings Institution Press, talking with Chung Lee about his new book, Chinese Politics in the Xi Jinping Era. Thanks, Fred. Chung, good to see you again. Congratulations on the publication of your new book. It's a monumental and groundbreaking work, and we are pleased to have worked with you to publish it. Thank you. We are honored and uh, really a wonderful experience to work with your team. Your book is a wide-ranging overview and in-depth exploration of how power works in the People's Republic of China. But the book also has a number of arguments to make about how we should think about the way the Chinese party state works. Before we get to some of those arguments, can you give us a brief overview of how the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese central government work? Well, the defining characteristics of Chinese uh, political system is the party state. In a way that the party... Uh, control the government. This is actually uh, defined and uh, legitimized through not only the Chinese Communist Party's constitution, but also the constitution of the People's Republic of China. And uh, so in a way, the government and the party is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a one-party state, and uh, this does not allow the real political competition uh, as what happened in many democracies into a multi-party system. Now, China has some kind of so-called democratic party, but these are very, very small. Chinese people said this is like a flower vest parties mm-hmm. only to show they exist. But uh, having said that, we should also remember that the one-party state does not necessarily mean the leadership is a monolithic group. Actually, they are divided. Leaders are divided into different political camps with different ideology, different social economic background, and um, different policy orientation. Now, this has become increasingly uh, apparent, like become a reality, when you uh, have the so-called collective leadership. When there's a no very very strong politician like dictator Mao or mm-hmm. strongman Deng. So you tend to 
have certain kind of checks and balances. This is what happened in the past uh, three decades until Xi Jinping uh, came to power four years ago. And Xi Jinping is the president of China and the uh, general, general secretary, secretary of the Communist the party. party. Usually, these two positions are held by the same person. In the case of Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and now Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. Now, in a way, Xi Jinping has changed. The, the norms and the political uh, collective leadership in a way that uh, he assembled more power. He is not only the first among the equal, but uh, certainly the first among, uh, uh, you know, it's much stronger than the other six members of Power Bureau Standing Committee. But uh, the question is, why that happened? What caused this? And whether this is temporary or long-term? Mm-hmm. Now, we should put it in the context very quickly. Uh, what happened is, in the uh, four years ago, Chinese Communist Party leadership become malfunction, and some of our politicians, like members of Standing Committee or Power Bureau, hijack the leadership, and the military become increasingly out of control with the civilian leadership. The corruption become uh, so widely spread. In my view, it's not only unprecedented in uh, PRC history or Chinese modern history. Also, unparalleled in today's world, with so many cases involving, you know, a couple of billions, even ten billions uh, U.S. dollars, this mm-hmm. kind of corruption. You need to fix that. It was but huge. With, yeah. Yes, but without power, how could you uh, deal with these kind of challenges? So Xi Jinping is blessed by the fact that his political camp got the six versus one ratio, the majority, that allow him. To carry out these bold and uh, uh, really quite strong programs, whether anti-corruption or military reform, and uh, that explains why he regained the confidence from the Chinese public. Um, but uh, this is the thing, in my view, it's still temporary, mm-hmm. because of the institutional norms and the rules, which started from Deng Xiaoping over the past three decades, actually remain. Uh, the book argues is far more enduring. And effective than most people thought. Mm-hmm. So this is my argument. I want to go back to those four years ago, actually, uh, because you say at the beginning of the book that the Chinese Communist Party must find a new mechanism to uh, choose its top officials, and you illustrate that with the case of telling the story of Bo Xilai. Yes. You write that Bo Xilai represented the greatest challenge to the party's legitimacy since the 1989 mm-hmm. Tiananmen Square incident. Who is Bo, and what happened? Well. Bo was a party secretary of Chongqing and also one of the 25 members of the Bureau. So he was already a heavyweight politician. Chongqing is the largest uh, city in China, I assume also largest city in the world with a population of 32 million people, mm. you know, far Huge. more than the whole entire population of Australia or Canada, maybe even double than uh, one of these two countries. Uh, so uh, that person also launched a very unique campaign, uh, which has two components. One is to sing the red song and uh, try to, um, you know, to to talk about the Cultural Revolution in a more favorable term. And the Cultural Revolution, just for listeners, was that event Cultural starting Revolution around 1965. was the 10 years darkness in the Mao era. Um, this is the era that the husband betrayed wife, wife betrayed husband, not for 
sexual reason, but mm-hmm. for political reason. This is the era that uh, uh, the country the, or the, the regime treat the adults like children, treat the children like adults. So I grew up in that period, and my family suffered a great deal. And we lost one brother uh, who is 12 years uh, elder than me. And he was a college student at Fudan University. And uh, he was uh, uh, basically uh, considered as counter-revolutionary. The charge against him was he listening to the enemy's radio, Voice of America. Uh, because he basically just wanted to practice English uh, along with uh, BBC and the Voice of America. So uh, when he uh, actually graduated in 1967, uh, was uh, sent to first the Liaoning Wushun, then went to Hunan. Uh, then because of uh, factional, you know, uh, uh, rebellion groups uh, in the grassroots, they got his dossier, which is sent by Fudan University. Then they actually beaten him to death. They considered mm-hmm. it such a criminal. And uh, then put him uh, his body on the railroad. You know, sounds like he committed suicide. And uh, I remember that, that time I was still teenagers, and I remember that uh, we got that uh, uh, the note uh, said that he committed suicide, and uh, we thought that uh, he did, but only until almost a decade later, uh, when native Shanghai uh, came to see my parents, and uh, told us that he actually was beaten death first, then put his body on the railroad. Now, this is only one of the tragedies, so many thousands of tragedies, including Deng Xiaoping's son also, uh, whether he's really committed suicide or just uh, uh, threw out of the window, he become disabled. And there's so many very sad stories. So I'm fortunate enough to really went through all of these difficulties. And uh, in a way that um, the Cultural Revolution period, that at that time, we were young, we were brainwashed, but also we have the revelation of the Cultural Revolution, you know how awful, that, uh, how terrible that period. So if you, you were asking me that any, any Chinese leaders I really don't like, I think I don't like it, Bo Xilai. Or other leaders, I think that uh, they have married. But Bo Xilai is such an opportunist. Mm-hmm. And uh, he himself also suffered after the Cultural Revolution. And, um, uh, but he was a very violent renegade. And, uh, but he glorified that horrible decade to the degree that uh, uh, Wen Jiabao, Premier Wen Jiabao, and other leaders thought that uh, he was really remnant of the Cultural Revolution and uh, was very, very dangerous. But also the other things he was quite uh, you know, disturbing. He, he really said that uh, he wanted to deal with the underground mafia. But, uh, so he arrested or fired uh, thousands of policemen and executed the former police chief. But what happened is later on, his wife was involved with a murder with a British mm-hmm. policeman called Neil Heward. The police chief that uh, he appointed to replace the previous police chief they executed actually uh, defected to the uh, uh, American consul in Chengdu. So the rest was a history. But that was another turning point in China's uh, you know, really uh, quite a remarkable history. Then also eventually led Xi Jinping uh, to come to power. Lawrence Chandy is a fellow here at Brookings, and along with program director Kamal Dervish, is the co-author of one of a series of essays on global debates that mark the 10th anniversary of the Global Economy and Development Program. Here's Lawrence on his essay, Are Technology and Globalization Destined to Drive Up Inequality? This is Lawrence Chandy. I'm a fellow in the Global Program at Brookings. 
I've written an essay with my colleague, Kamal Dervish, looking at the question of what the effect of technology and globalization will be on inequality in the future. There's a lot of concern about this topic, and it's shared by people in our program. There's no doubt that technology and globalization have already acted as a huge force on inequality, especially over the last 20 years. But this is actually a very complicated story, and that's what our essay is about. The first area of complexity is that the impact of technology and globalization really depends on what kind of inequality we're talking about or whose inequality we're measuring. So let's consider first global inequality. That's the difference in incomes between everyone in the world, all 7 billion of us. Here, the factors of technology and globalization are actually leading to a narrowing in the distribution of income. The global distribution of income is ultimately a function of two things, the inequality within each country in the world and inequality between each country. And the dominant effect of the last 20 years, there's been a rapid narrowing of between-country inequality as poorer countries have caught up with the rich world. Of course, this narrowing of global inequality doesn't mean that everyone's happy. There have been relative winners and losers in this process. And this is really expertly illustrated, by the way, by the so-called elephant chart by Branko Milanovic and Christoph Lackner. If you haven't seen that chart, I strongly encourage you to Google it. It's worth a look. So now let's think about within-country inequality. Now, the story of the last 20 years in the US has been of inequality widening quite rapidly. And that's been true throughout most of the rich countries of the world, the OECD members. And in certainly some of those countries, especially the US, but also the UK, we've seen inequality widen, especially at the top. So we have this phenomenon of the so-called top 1%. In the developing world, the story is quite different. We saw inequality widen throughout most of the 80s and the 90s. But since then, that trend has stopped. So within country inequality in the developing world has plateaued. And if anything, it seems to have perhaps narrowed slightly. We also have very little understanding in the developing world of what's going on at the top of the distribution. So we can't really talk about the top 1% in developing countries because there isn't really the data to do it. Now, another thing that makes this whole topic really complex is that technology and globalization affect inequality through multiple channels. These channels don't always operate in the same direction. Let me give you some examples. So we know that technology increases the returns to skills. It gives bigger incomes to people who have the greatest skills and are able to harness those in the economy. And in the rich world, that effect is reinforced by the effect of trade, as rich countries specialize in trading and high-skilled activities. In the developing world, there is certainly a premium we see for people who are more skilled. And yet the effect of trade is the opposite. Developing countries specialize in lower-skilled activities. We also know that technology has led to an increased role of capital in the production process. And that means that people who own capital, that's investors, have done very well over the last 10 to 20 years. That effect seems to be true globally. We also know that technology has led to new monopolistic markets. If you think of digital platforms, think of things like Google and so forth. The owners of those platforms and the people who work for those uh, companies have made huge profits and are making vast wages in what's being described as winner-take-all markets. Yet it's really interesting if you think about those very same digital platforms while they've created monopolies, they've also lowered entry costs for people who participate on those platforms. Think about Uber drivers or people who rent out their rooms in their house on Airbnb or sellers on eBay. A lot of those people have been able to do very well as a result of these new digital platforms. This has also created many new winners and losers and really changed how profits are being shared and distributed in the global economy. Kamal and I conclude our essay by identifying some of the areas which we're going to be watching closely over the next few years. 
One of them is the effect of automation on jobs. This is clearly a very big topic right now in the press, but there is very little agreement among experts as to how serious a risk automation poses to workers. This is partly a question of the extent of disruption that automation could cause, but also how quick the disruption will occur. For us in the global program, we're especially concerned with the effect of automation on the developing world and how it might affect the prospects for developing countries to grow quickly and to catch up with living standards in the rich world. Another area where we think is really important to watch is to see how policymakers around the world are going to try and shape the distribution of income in their countries differently, not just through the effects of taxing and spending, but trying to shape market outcomes themselves. I think we can expect to see some country governments playing a more prominent role using their own investments to shape the direction that innovation, research and development take. Finally, we're going to be looking for ways of obtaining data that can tell us more about what is going on in this complex story. Right now, our understanding is partly limited by the limitations of data themselves. And this is an area where there's the need for new innovation on its own. You can find the Global Debate series on our website by searching for 11 Global Debates. And now back to Bill Finan and Chung Lee. She is a central focus of your book, obviously. And can you tell us who he is and about his rise to power? Short summary. Well, Xi Jinping, a group of the Cultural Revolution, also suffered himself because his father was considered as um, a kind of a capitalist roader. This is Mao were classified as an enemy, although his father was a senior leader, like a vice premier. And um, he grew up in Cultural Revolution, but uh, his, uh, he also faced the same uh, discrimination, like, uh, you know, to a certain extent, my family got. But it's a different background. I came from a, a family that my father was a capitalist. He came from a family with a communist revolutionary. And, but uh, we both uh, suffer uh, a great deal. Mm-hmm. He was sent to the uh, countryside as a farmer, as a manual labor. When he was a teenager, he spent seven years in Yan'an, one of the most primitive regions in the country. That experience really actually uh, gave him uh, a lot of valuable uh, assets, and uh, like how to know the real China, how to endure the hardship, and uh, how to... Uh, know what the Chinese parents like and uh, don't like. And um, so uh, he really treasured that period. Then he came back to college to study. That's when the cultural revolution is still in the later stage. Uh, then he worked as a personal assistant to Minister of Defense for a few years. Then after that, he just really gradually, step by step, you know, uh, from the local leaders, county leaders to uh, municipal leader to provincial leader, then serve in uh, uh, Fujian, Zhejiang, Shanghai, uh, really economically advanced region. He um, has been noticed for his pro-market approach. But on the political uh, front, he is far more conservative. And uh, uh, But uh, I also think that uh, uh, the conservative is the reason that he wants to put a priority on the economic reform and also deal with corruption. So in that regard, Anti-corruption, in my view, is also a political measure. So that's a priority. Mm-hmm. Now, we yet to know when he gets this political capital, how he will spend it, whether only for his own personal power or will transfer party to make the party's institutional uh, development more solid, more effective. This is the 
question. Most people are uh, still has been cynical, but I'm less cynical. I think we should give him the benefit of doubt. Right, and you elaborate on that in the book yeah. and, and make the argument too that it is far too simplistic to cast him as another Putin yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, but you do say though that there still is a question of whether. Uh, she is going to create problems for the whole idea of collective leadership and that mechanism of creating new leaders with the next Congress to occur. You said you're skeptical of the picture of him as a budding authoritarian, but at the same time, you yeah. do have concerns. Uh, you know, he faced, he confronts the three options, uh, especially uh, regarding to selecting the next Power Bureau Standing Committee because this is the, the superior body um, of the decision-making or leadership called the Power Bureau Standing Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently has seven people, uh, uh, sometimes could have nine, sometimes could have five. But among the current seven leaders, five will retire because of the age uh, uh, limits. So how to select the, the, the other, the, the new members, it become a big challenge. The fact that the people will continue to pay attention to this leadership body also tell us the collective leadership actually remains. Otherwise, there's no reason to pay too much attention. Only pay attention to to Xi, but rather now we certainly pay not only to Xi, but also how that uh, new leadership body Mm -hmm. will be formed. Uh, He has three choices. One is uh, to really uh, take all the power. So the Power Bureau Standing Committee become his personal cabinet. He appointed one, 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 and one, two, three. And also there's no hurry for finding a successor because like Mao or Deng, each of the, uh, I mean, his Mao and Deng led China for 25 to 30 years. So he can do the same thing. Some of his critics said that definitely this is Xi Jinping's choice. I'm not so sure. Right. And right. Uh, uh, because you will, uh, in that regard, you will uh, change the party constitution change the political norm or rhetoric or ideology and change the institutional framework. Now, at least from the, uh, the party's communique, which was released just a few days ago, the important platinum, so-called sixth platinum, you continue to see the definition of the five generations from Mao, Deng, uh, Jiang, Hu, to Xi. You know, there's a rhetoric, a continue to a continuation. So there's no sign that only uh, Mao, Deng, or Xi. So that certainly undermines some of the critical cynicism. Mm-hmm. Now, the second uh, uh, choice is the the idea of team of rivals, and uh, which is that uh, the famous American book, right. which also right. led uh, President Obama to appoint uh, uh, Secretary Clinton uh, to be that position, and Harry Clinton to be the secretary, and the United Democrat Party. So uh, that has been practiced uh, in China in the past two decades. Now, this means that uh, Xi may go reach out of his own political camp to the uh, the opposition uh, uh, camp. Now, these factions or camps are not entirely transparent, not legitimate in the Chinese political system. But having said that, if you ask any taxi driver in China, uh, in Beijing, Shanghai, they will tell you which leader belongs to which so faction. So they know the faction. And uh, among the yeah. leaders certainly know that. This yeah. is the, the, you know, really what the Bo Xilai mean, what the Zhou Yongkang mean. I mean, uh, this is all things related with uh, factional uh, uh, politics. But uh, this is the, the idea of team rivals. Basically, he need to reach out. So in a way, the Power Bureau Standing Committee will no longer be six versus one ratio as we describe in the current party leadership, but rather could be three and four. Maybe also one of the three, the opposition, could be a future leader. 
Now, this will be difficult to accept. Mm-hmm. You know, after five remarkable years of consolidated power, you end up with a leadership. Actually, you become relative majority, and also you can imagine. Foreign and domestic media will pay more attention to the potential successor, and um, who is, and highly likely will be his uh, the, the other faction. Now, so that will not be easy. The third scenario, or option, is that uh, pre- actually China does have election. That election, intra-party election, is quite limited, but uh, they do let the the delegates to the uh, Central Committee every five years. This is about two thousand people. To vote for the 370-ish members of Central Committee,、uh, which means that the bottom 10 percent, roughly, will be eliminated. But if you want to be Power Bureau, you know the middle level, the top level is Power Bureau Standing Committee. You need to be in the Central Committee.、Mm-hmm. If you are not elected to the Central Committee, you will not be qualified to the high-level leadership Power Bureau or Power Bureau Standing Committee. So, in the past history, I mean, thirty years, there some of the candidates、uh, already determined, but actually uh, uh, eliminated in the this kind of election. That the election never reached the level that the Central Committee member to elect Power Bureau or Power Bureau Standing Committee. Now you can imagine that the next party Congress, Xi Jinping's people, his followers, his like-minded people, will enter the Central Committee. This is about three hundred seventy people. Whether we'll open the door to let him to select the next Power Bureau, then open up the Chinese political intra-party democracy in a big way, we do not know. That also involves risks. Right, right. Are you skeptical of that occurring? No, I'm leaning towards that scenario. But none of the options is easy.、Hmm. That will be big test for Xi Jinping. I want to pull back to a larger view. As you point out in the book, China today is undergoing enormous socio-economic change, and you argue in the book that this will put stress on the current system of leadership selection, and that's something taking place outside the party, as you described it. And so, how how would that happen? Well, again, actually, my final chapter, I spend a lot of time talking about society. Now, I'm optimistic about China,、uh, largely because I do believe. People do not want to go back to Cultural Revolution. Bolshevik will never be successful, and although his incident, Bolshevik incident, is a random, it's bad luck, and、uh, yet Bolshevik has no chance to become top leader in China because the way he is really moving back. Now Xi Jinping differ from、uh, Bolshevik in profound way, although both of them are princelings, come from prominent family. Xi Jinping. Uh, really, in personal level, is more liked, not like a, 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 a Bolshevik is so egoistic, so mean. The mean not only to his、uh, lieutenant, but also to his father and to one of his sons,、mm. and uh, that's uh, the things that uh, it's really uh, quite uh, unique. But、uh, also, Xi Jinping、uh, pro market is not anti market. Bolshevik is famous for you know state. On enterprises and etc., and also at least,、uh, you know, Xi Jinping talk about importance of rule of law. Yes, he may sometimes, you know, or his、uh, regime or his leadership harass some human rights lawyers, but at the same time, he also talk about importance of law and dedicated one platinum on legal development. But the Bolshevik completely ignore a law 
And uh, he not only arrested human rights lawyers, but also executed some of them and executed some of the uh, his political rivals in such a way. So they're quite different in so many important ways. And then it also underscores why you find that life imprisonment for Bo is not an especially wrong uh, correct uh, yeah. judgment. But the thing is, what I'm optimistic is, it's not partially about the leadership structure, which I call one party, two coalitions. One party, two camps. I will be happy to talk through details because the book, probably read the book. Mm-hmm. There are lots of yes. details about why the party, uh, despite the one party state, uh, is not a monolithic group. I'm optimistic about China. And you early mentioned Boshila incident was similar with the largest one since 1989, Tiananmen, maybe even uh, since 1976 after the Cultural Revolution. But the Chinese society, or Chinese economy not affecting the same way negatively than the previous two incidents. And society still move forward. Mm-hmm. The reason is because society becomes so mature. You have the forces like middle class, entrepreneurial class, uh, legal profession, and um, commercialized media, and uh, NGOs, despite some difficulties, they still continue to expand. So all these things did not exist or extremely weak in 1989 China or certainly in 1976 China. Uh, so these forces will push for change. Now also, Xi Jinping is, bo- is popular, I mean, the low and middle level of military. Xi Jinping is popular with general public. But he still need to reconcile the relationship with Chinese intellectuals because there's a lot of criticism uh, about Xi Jinping. So in a way, that this criticism also will prevent a dictator emerging in China, in my view. And uh, I do not necessarily agree with Chinese intellectuals, but I'm happy that they have the freedom to express their views, at, a, at least a limited freedom. Uh, so that comes with the hope, and um, uh, this hope will make leaders to, to be on the right side of history. If you single-mindedly go to extreme, then you will not be popular. So I think this is a dynamic that make leaders should go along with the history, go along with the society. Xi Jinping to be proof a leader with flexibility, with a kind of you know, good judgment. Mm-hmm. So that also uh, gave me some hope. So the hope is not only the leadership, not only Xi Jinping, but most importantly, with the society, with the social forces, which is a witness to emerge. We'll end with that hope, and I want to thank you for coming to talk to us today. We've barely scratched the surface of the wealth of insights and information contained in your new book, and I would recommend anyone who has a strong interest in how power in China works today should read it. So thank you. Thank you. Cheng Li's book, Chinese Politics in the Xi Jinping Era, has just been published by the Brookings Institution Press. You can find it on our website. Finally today, meet Harsha Singh and learn more about the Brookings India Center in New Delhi. Dr. Harsha Singh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. I'd like to start by asking you to just please introduce yourself. I'm Harsh Vardhan Singh. My friends call me Harsha. And I have joined Brookings India as executive director on 1st of August this year. So I'm two months old, uh, but I've been involved with Brookings India work for some time. Before that, I was in think tanks in Geneva. I taught at a couple of universities in the U.S. for a short while also. 
uh, wanted to have the experience of teaching in addition to my other professional experiences. Uh, so in terms of my previous jobs, I have worked in two stints at the World Trade Organization or GATT and WTO. I started with the GATT system in mid-1985 and I left the GATT after working in five different areas in 1997, so 12 years. Then I was a telecom regulator. The Telecom Regulatory Authority of India was formed around the time I left. In fact, I was the first substantive person working other than the authority and the secretary in the regulatory body as economic advisor. So I was economic advisor for four years and secretary of the authority for four years. That was the time we brought in a lot of telecom reform, which has changed the face of the industry in India. Uh, it's now a completely different situation compared to what it was when I joined. After about eight years, I then came to the World Trade Organization again, this time as a deputy to the director general. So I was the deputy director general. There are four of us uh, there to Pascal Lamy. And he served two terms, and for both these terms, he retained the same team. So I was for eight years Deputy Director General of WTO. Then I started with some think tanks, teaching, as I told you, and in August this year, I came back to my country to be Executive Director of Brookings India. All right, let's talk then about Brookings India. What is it? Where is it? What is its mission? Brookings India is one of the overseas centers of Brookings, as you know. So we have Beijing, Doha, and Brookings India. The last one, namely Brookings India, being the youngest of the three. We are three years old. We have a chairman, India chairman, who I joke with my friends that, you know, he gives us 30% of his time formally, but since he works 18-hour days, he gives us 60%. Uh, and then we have three fellows. One of them has just become a senior fellow. And there is me. And then we have research associates and research assistants. So it's just a very small team. But if you see the newsletter of Brookings India, you will never guess it's such a small team. Because actually a lot of work gets done. And very high quality work also. The areas covered include energy, smart grades, foreign policy, several aspects of foreign policy, and health, smart cities. We did something last year on education, analyzing election data trends. We are thinking of going into quality aspects of health. So that's what is presently the focus of Brookings India. After I joined, I now want to expand that focus to include several other subject matters. And of course, as you know, the main issues which we examine, the purpose is to develop appropriate policy understanding and, and initiatives which will help fulfill the relevant objectives of the policymaker of the nation or of the region uh, to the extent the nation has those linkages uh, in place, which it does, uh, and interests, and the global interaction of countries as, as far as the overseas center uh, is concerned. So I have uh, thought of expanding the scope to include trade and investment. And within trade and investment, both issues which relate to development of domestic capacity and domestic parts of the value chain when investment comes in, uh, high technology investment and how one can improve the absorptive capacity 
at home? What are the policies which will help develop global hubs when the investment comes in? What are the complementarities which could be developed between the different kinds of investment? Then I also want to begin initiatives on the digital issues. So there are digital issues which relate to regulatory processes. There are digital issues which relate to use of digital for social entrepreneurship. There are aspects which relate to using the platform for multiple purposes, both commercial as well as social objectives. And the hope is to develop policies and better understanding so that the objectives which are emphasized in the Government of India's uh, flagship program on Digital India can be better met. Then the issue of jobs and small and medium enterprises is another issue which I think is very important in most countries. India is emphasizing that immensely. At present, India is also trying to look at membership of APEC in order to improve the competitiveness or the functioning environment of the domestic entrepreneurs themselves. I also want to start some work on improving the competitiveness of SMEs. We have gone into the area of, uh, as far as health is concerned, two other aspects of health. One is nutrition and health. We would like to look deeper into it. We have decided to look at the first thousand days of the child, which means from conception till two years. So it's both the health of the mother and the child. And the first two years are the most crucial phase of a human being. Another is gender and health. So we have gone into that. There is yet another program where we have decided to look at issues of agriculture, how to increase incomes of small farmers, productivity, and outputs. And there are a number of innovative methods which are now used in different parts of India. So get more information on that and share that with both policymakers and the farmers. So that's another initiative. One other idea is to try and see specific medical devices and look at the quality which should be ensured uh, so that we can we can improve the situation with respect to the quality of and consistency of devices with international standards. So those are some of the ideas. Let's see which ones take root first. I'm trying on all these fronts. There is another initiative on India and Africa, which I would like to take up. So you mentioned that Brookings has centers of research and study in Doha, Qatar, and in Beijing, China. Hmm. Why was Brookings India the third foreign location set up? And why India? The precise reason for me <clears throat> would be difficult to give accurately because I don't have access to those records, but I can surmise and pretty well uh, assess the reasons. India is the power both in terms of strategic presence as well as economic prominence. India is a country where the population dividend can give rise to addressing several uh, concerns which the world in the future is going to face. The development of policies in India and the momentum which the Indian economy and polity has right now are of great significance, I think, both for the region and the world. So it's an obvious uh, thought to try and look at uh, these issues from 
a center based at the heart of the action itself, plus also to have an extended presence with experts who understand India, who are working for the objectives of the Indian policymaker as such, but from an independent and objective perspective. Because as my understanding goes, Brookings and Brookings India, the whole purpose is to try and look at issues as you as an expert understand them and then try and see, okay, what are the kind of objectives which are meaningful and how could one develop a policy framework or interaction or platforms or insights or database which actually enable implementation of those policies in a more effective way. So I think in every context there is a critical mass or a critical minimum which once the threshold is reached, then one has to engage much more deeply with that situation. So I think that situation with India had come, in fact, some time back. So I'm surprised it was only three years ago, but there must be reasons why it was only three years ago. Final question, Dr. Singh. If there's one thing that you would like listeners of this podcast to know or to understand about India, either coming at it from the point of view of the executive director of Brookings India or from the point of view of a citizen of India or both, what would that one thing be? The most important thing which I want to emphasize, and since we have an international audience, uh, it's very important to keep that in mind, is that it's now well recognized that India has a very strong momentum for its economic growth and the opportunities which it offers and its capability to participate in global initiatives. There are a number of areas which might be a matter of concern for others. It may relate to trade policy, it may relate to industrial policy, it, or whatever areas might be of concern of foreign policy, etc. But the one point which I have understood about the Indian emphasis by the main policymaker is that they want to be very active and responsible parts of the global community. They recognize what is needed to be done in economic terms, in social terms, etc., within the country, and they are making efforts to do that. The recent uh, goods and services tax initiative of the government is an example of that. So while all these efforts are being made, it's important to look at them in the manner in which they are being made. They are being made to enhance the country's capabilities so as to be a more participative and contributing society to the regional and global context. And when you see that as a background, then the perspective with which one has to interact with India is that, okay, the direction is one which is a win-win for all of us. How do we enable it so that those objectives which lead to this win-win are enabled for India as well as for us? So it's, it's an understanding of a potential which is being aspired towards through very concrete policies on the ground. And once you understand that, then perhaps you can take a more medium-term perspective rather than just immediately looking at 
something which is being done by India and say, hey, you're not where I would like you to be. They will be, but they need that space and they need an understanding and common support. Well, Dr. Harsha Singh, Executive Director of Brookings India, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. You can find Brookings India at brookings.in. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reboredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Souter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. And design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Find us on the web at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.